How many of you tonight have been enjoying our Wednesday night cultural conversations? This has been good for everybody. Man, I have so enjoyed it. And, uh, and tonight, man, I have uh, the greatest privilege in the world of, uh, of introducing uh, my very best uh, friend uh, to you. Uh, he was the best man in my wedding. Um, uh, we have been uh, very close friends for a number of years. And, uh, and, man, to have him here with us, I called him and said, man, would you, would you consider uh, uh, coming and being a part of this conversation? And uh, he was so willing to come and to be a part. He, is, uh, uh, he actually just got promoted over at Gateway Church, and he is now the executive pastor of their Frisco campus. Uh, Gateway Church is uh, over 30,000 people uh, there in the, in the Dallas Metroplex, and uh, God is doing great things through that church. And, uh, and, and, man, I am so thrilled that he chose to drive all the way from Dallas to be with us uh, tonight. And you know how we welcome and we honor men of God around here. Come on, Pastor Jelani Lewis. Come on up here. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. John, I thank you so much for, for being here, and uh, man, we've just taken time out of your schedule. We so appreciate you being a part of this of this conver about of being a part of this conversation. Um, why don't you just give everybody just a little bit of background? You grew up here. Just kind of give everybody a, a quick little rundown of your journey. Um, Absolutely. I I was actually born in in I'm born in Shreveport. I was born in California. Um, sometimes I get confused. I've got a eight month old little boy that's over in the corner. Uh, his name is Jaden. That's my wife back there, Erin. Um, and uh, Jaden's our eight-month-old. And then I've got a uh, two-year-old named Judah who I don't see. Oh, she's in class because she may be driving our car. I mean, my my <laughs> daughter, she's so funny. She uh, This was probably, I guess, a couple months ago. Um, she was upstairs in her bedroom, and normally I go get her in the morning, so I wake up, and I'll, I'll get her out of her crib, and apparently this mor- this one particular morning, I wasn't moving fast enough, and so I could hear her upstairs saying, Daddy, Daddy, come get me. Daddy, I'm awake, Daddy, and uh, and so I, I didn't say anything, and the next thing I hear was, Jawani, Jawani, <laughs> so when your two-year-old starts calling you by your first name, we've got problems in the homestead. <laughs> So uh, please pray for us. But yeah, I was born in California, but I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, went to school at Evangel in high school. Went to school at Louisiana Tech. Transferred to Central Arkansas. Lived in Arkansas for about five and a half years, and then I spent—I uh, guess I spent the last eleven years in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex. So, and been working at Gateway Church for ten years now. The first. I guess it was six years I worked in children's ministry, and that's why I'm bald. Um, but, um, but I worked in children's ministry, and it was fantastic. And then I've been out at our Frisco campus for the last four years. Well, man, we so appreciate you being here. Um, as we dive into this conversation, Donnie, I just want to remind everybody, we, we shared this last week, uh, but what are our goals out of these conversations? What, what are we trying to achieve? It's important that we know that, and it's also important to know what, what are not our goals, what we're not trying to achieve. And, and so our goals are this. One is that we would listen uh, to others' experiences and their perspectives. Uh, that's number one. We want to hear. We want to listen to what they have to say. Uh, number two is that we gain a deeper understanding of this issue of, 
of, of racial division, uh, that, we gain, that we gain a better understanding of that. That's our goal. Uh, I, our goal is also to begin a conversation about the response that Christ demands out of us as his followers pertaining to this issue. Uh, so those are our three goals. That's what we are trying to accomplish and get going. What our goals are not are these, is to embrace a particular party or movement. That's not our goal. We're not trying to embrace a party or embrace any certain movement. Um, our goal is not to fix everything. That's not our goal. Our goal is not to fix um, all of the issues. Uh, our goal is not to justify our own point of view. If you remember, we've, we've been talking about this is a discussion and not a debate. In a debate, I'm trying to prove my point. In a discussion, I'm trying to listen and hear what you are saying so I can better understand. And then what uh, the last one is that this is, uh, this is not our final conversation. Okay, so this is, th these, are, these are the beginning steps. These are the first, uh, the first fruits, if you would. Um, this is not the end-all, be-all. Uh, and so we're not going to come to a final resolution after one Wednesday night or after a series of these Wednesday nights. But this is a beginning place. Um, and Jelani, I want to start tonight by just um, saying, you know, whenever, whenever someone begins to talk about the issues of race, discrimination, reconciliation, um, inevitably that's like people start getting nervous uh, when those issues start uh, coming up. Uh, why do you believe that these issues are so difficult for us to talk about? I remember actually, I think it was after the shootings that happened in Dallas, Texas, um, we at my church at Gateway, we decided to, to have a moment within the service where we prayed over the first responders and prayed about some of the issues that were taking place. That were taking place. And so um, one of the pastors on staff who's a white pastor or a Euro-American pastor or a Caucasian pastor or an Anglo-Saxon <laughs> pastor, however you want to put that today. Um, but he sends me this text message because he is doing oversight at one of our campuses. And um, his concern is that same thing. He, he says, Jelani, listen, I, I need you to help me because... I want to be sensitive, and I'm just not sure how to go about this. I want to lead this prayer in a way that's honoring, first of all, to God, but, but to all the people that come to our campuses. So, so I need you to help me with this. And then at the end of his text message, he, he texts, uh, and I'm sorry if this text message is insensitive. Because he, he, he's struggling with the fact that just because I asked the question, I realize even asking this question, Jelani, could be considered insensitive. Right. And so it is, it's very real. And, and I think part of that, uh, Philip, has to do with the fact that when you look at historically America, if you were to say that there is a black eye for America, you would have to say, generally speaking, we're talking about race relations. That When you look at our history, it would have to do with how we've treated the Native Americans, how we've treated African Americans. And so because that has historically been the black eye, it makes it very sensitive. And uh, it, it feels, I guess to me, it's kind of like this. I, um, I remember a few years ago, uh, one of my friends, his, his mother passed away. And so I came to the funeral, and it was one of those situations where I wasn't sure what to say or what to do because I had never had that experience. So first of all, I see him, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do because I can't relate. Okay, I've never had that experience. Secondly, I've done funerals. I've been a part of funerals. I've heard people say stupid things at funerals. And, and so what I didn't want to do was say something stupid that would hurt him even more. So I'm like, okay, I don't want to say something that would be more damaging. Then my personality is to say, you know what, I'm just going to be funny. Let's just make a joke here 
so we don't even have to talk about the fact that his mother's dead. That, that's literally, so, so what I did, I saw him, and I'm like, do you remember when we used to do, and I make this joke. But part of that was because I was very uncomfortable with the pain. Part of that was because I didn't want to say something that would be damaging. And part of that was because I couldn't relate. And I think sometimes that's how we feel. We, 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 we walk around, we say, I, I don't know what to say. Um, I can't really relate. I don't want to hurt you anymore, and so I don't know what to say. The problem is, though, is that when we're silent, somebody else teaches. So, so it's just like, to me, it, it's like having the conversation about sex with your children. I know for a lot of parents, it's, it's very awkward. We don't know what to do, how, how I even have this conversation. So, so our um, default is to say we're just not going to say anything. The problem is, well, their peers are going to teach them. Television is going to teach them. Somebody is going to get the first real estate in their mind. And, and so in our silence, we invite someone else to educate. And so when we refuse to talk about the subject, we actually invite CNN, BET, Fox News to educate us on how to respond to the situations that are taking place in our nation when, in fact, the church is supposed to be the safe place to have the conversation. Wow, wow, wow man, so good. And, and right, right, right in, that, in, in that same line of thinking, what would, what would you say maybe to those that believe that, you know, the, the church should stay in their lane, if you would, that <laughs> the church shouldn't bring these type of, uh, of societal issues into the four walls? What would your re response be to that? Well, I, I think I would say, first of all, can we talk about the Bible in church? Because if you read through the Bible, the Bible actually deals with these issues. Uh, and so, I mean, you can start navigating through there. Jesus was very overtly going to Samaria to talk to the Samaritan woman, of, of which they would consider, Jews would consider a half-breed. It's very clear right there. You go into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. You, at this point, you've got Peter. Um, the Holy Spirit begins to deal with him about his treatment of the Gentiles and calls him to go to the Roman soldier Cornelius' home. Uh, and, and Peter even says, look, you know we don't do this. Right. We don't really do this, but God has shown me that he shows no favoritism. And so he goes, and then even if you go further into Galatians chapter 2, Paul actually rebukes Peter publicly because Peter starts off and he's eating with the Gentiles, but some, some Jews come to Antioch and, and Peter's concerned about the criticism. And so he decides... I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. Peter actually, or Paul actually rebukes him publicly. And, and he basically says, Peter, that's not even a picture of the gospel, wow. what you just did. And so for one, I think if we're going to talk about scripture, we have to talk about these issues. Uh, the second part is most, I don't know if I would say most, but I would say there's a significant portion of Jesus's teachings that were a response to a question. I mean, if you, if you think about what happens in scripture, Jesus, um, who is my neighbor? You know, what's the most important commandment? Teach us how to pray. And so what Jesus does is he responds to the questions that people are asking. And here's the reality. People are asking questions about race. They're asking questions about reconciliation. And we as a church have refused to answer. Wow. Uh, and so I, I'll tell you what has recently happened at our church. Um, well, I'll, I'll speak specifically with our staff. Um, so I'm leading a staff meeting, and I felt really strongly with our Frisco staff that we needed to talk about some of these issues. And uh, part of the reason why I felt like we needed to talk about this, and I don't know if you touched on this, but one of the, no, the things. Can I interrupt okay. you just a second? Frisco staff, yep. how big is y'all's campus on the weekend? How many staff okay. members are we talking so about? So there are 20-something staff. Um, yeah, I don't know the exact number, but 20-something hanging around there. And, uh, and then on a weekend, we have around 3,000. 
Uh, and so we're, we're having a staff meeting on a Monday morning, and all of these things are taking place in our nation, and I decide we're going to stop as a staff and talk about this. And part of the reason is, is because my response to the gentleman's text, who's saying, Jelani, can you help me uh, with this conversation, was I felt like the Holy Spirit reminded me of Genesis chapter 11. And if you remember Genesis chapter 11, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. God comes down. He sees them building a tower, in essence, in essence to themselves. And, and he looks at them and he says, all right, if these people are one people and they speak the same language, nothing will be impossible for them. That's what he says. Nothing will be impossible for them. So here's what we do. We see the context, and then he confuses the languages. And so our perspective is this is what God did. He confused the languages. But we miss the principle. The principle is if we're one people or we're united, if we speak the same language or we understand each other, nothing is impossible for us. As believers, so, so the way I, I process it in my mind is understanding plus unity equals possibility. But understanding comes as a part of a conversation. So what I decided to do with our Frisco staff was to have a conversation. I said, listen, we're, just like you're doing, we're not going to try to solve all the world's problems here, but I do want to have a safe place for us to have a conversation. So we opened it up, and it was amazing dialogue. And in that room, you've got a black lady in her either late 50s, early 60s, she's lived some life. She's seen enough, and she starts speaking into this. Sitting next to her is a white lady who's married to a black man, and they have children, and now they're having to have conversations with their children about some of the issues that are happening in the nation. And she's in tears because she says, I can't even relate to this. But now I'm having to talk to my, my, um, my children about this. In the very back, there's a pastor on our staff that was raised as a racist. He was actually celebrated in his home for derogatory statements towards people of color. All of this is taking place in the room. There's another lady in there whose husband is in the military. And she speaks up and says, well, my concern is for the spouses of the first responders. Because I know what it's like as a woman whose husband is in the military when they go off to war and they may not come back. I don't know who's going to show up at my door. So I have a heart for them. All of a sudden, we have perspective taking place in this room. And so it's really important that we as the church have this conversation, that we create a safe environment to dialogue about the issues that are taking place in our nation. Yeah, yeah, so good. Um, you know, obviously, um, uh, our personal experiences um, heavily shape and influence, um, you know, our perspectives. And that's what everybody has here. And we've, we've kind of talked about that over the last few weeks is that, you know, everybody has a certain perspective. Everybody sees something a certain way. And, uh, and we see it that way because these are the experiences that we had growing up. These are the family that we grew in. This is what our mom or dad taught us or modeled for us. And, and that, that weighs on, on our current perspective. Uh, why don't you just take a moment and uh, talk about the, the difference in perspectives, uh, maybe uh, of, of the way that you see it, of white people and black people um, dealing with the racial tension in America right now. And th to be clear, certainly we understand it's not just a black-white issue, okay? Um, that's just kind of the highlighted piece that's going on right now, so I'll, I'll speak to that. Um, but uh, as you guys can see, my wife is white and uh, very white. <laughs> 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 oh, my bad. I'll be in trouble. My bad, my bad. Um, but she's from Amarillo, Texas, okay? I think there were like five black people in the whole city. I don't even know. Um, 
but of course, I grew up from Shreveport, Louisiana, and I remember that my wife and I, one day we were talking about the Trayvon Martin situation. We literally had to stop the conversation. We literally had to stop the conversation because I was coming from one perspective and getting frustrated, and she's coming from another perspective. And the reality was is that both of us were really coming from our own personal experience. It wasn't wrong either way, but the reality is is I had an experience that had shaped my perspective. She had an experience that had shaped her perspective, and we didn't realize the conflict that was taking place because of that until we begin to understand, listen, this is where we're coming from, and this is why. So I think it's really important for us to understand that our experiences begin to shape our perspective, and our perspective or perception is reality. Now, um, there's a pastor, his name is Dennis Rouse. He's a pastor of Victory Church in Atlanta. And in this particular church, there's 140 different nations represented. And he says this to me the, the very best. He says, generally speaking, this is not all the, always the case, but generally speaking, white people view racism on an individual basis, okay? It's that person, their issue. I'm not racist but that person is, okay? I wasn't raised racist, that's not what I did. It's actually that person. That's really how my wife was. Generally speaking, though, black people view racism in an institutional basis, that we actually see it as it's the system, it's, it's society. Um, we start to navigate those things. And so when you don't understand that these are the two perspectives that are engaged in the conversation, you have a tremendous amount of conflict that takes place. Could you speak a little bit more to to that yep. that individual versus uh -huh. the institutional? I would like to hear absolutely. a little bit more about uh, that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, um, <laughs> so let's go back to the example with with my wife. Okay, my wife would probably have told you growing up. Obviously, I'm not a racist. My parents aren't racist. Um, I've heard issues that have taken place within the nation, but that's just not us. All of a sudden, we get married. And she becomes face-to-face -face with a new reality, that when we walk into a restaurant, now people stare. Now, some of that, they stare because she's taller than me, and when she wears heels, I look like Willis. Um, so, so some of that, we, we, we're pretty honest about that. But all of a sudden, she's, she's faced with a new reality. And listen, we're stared at not just by white people, but by black people, that we literally go into a restaurant, and all of a sudden, people are looking. Um, and all of a sudden, she is faced now with a new reality. Because she's entered into uh, an interracial relationship, all of a sudden now she begins to experience new things that she never had experienced before. So again, generally speaking, most people, I, I would say, you know, most people at this church, we, we don't have an issue with race per se. Um, but we look at it from that perspective. I don't have an issue. That person has an issue. Then African-Americans come in and say, wait a minute, it's society, it's institutional. And, and so what happens, let me make sure I say this right. What happens because of that is African-Americans get frustrated because what they feel is apathy. Mm, mm, mm. The apathy of the majority. Mm. You don't care. Mm. You don't care. Now, here's the thing. Because you're coming from an individual perspective, wait a minute. The problem's not as widespread as you think. It's, it's really not. It's, you're talking about that person, Jelani. But when you come from an institutional perspective, you should care because it's bigger than you think. Wow. 
and so African Americans are frustrated, one, because obviously we feel like discrimination is still taking place, but what adds fuel to the fire is the fact that it seems like nobody cares. And, and I would say that maybe that's where uh, the, I mean, the, the whole, maybe the movement, the hashtag, whatever we mm -hmm. want to call it, of Black Lives Matters. Yep. Um, as a response mm -hmm. to a little bit of what uh, of what you're saying, and um, so can you tell me a little bit about about what what do you where does that come from? Where does the Black Lives Matter yeah. come from? Mm -hmm. And then you know then you have every other the mm -hmm. Blue Lives Matter and all the All Lives, lives Matter, matter uh -huh. and the you know everybody else matters. Yep. You know after yep. that, <laughs> and, and and tell me tell me where well, first of all where did that where does where does that come from? Uh -huh. Black Lives Matter, uh -huh. and then what about all the other responses yep. to that? Absolutely, uh, I think the tension with Black Lives Matter is that it sounds exclusive as opposed to inclusive. So I think if we can really land the plane, what it feels like is you're saying black lives matter and those are the only ones that matter. That's really not what black lives matter is really saying. I mean, people would feel much better if you said black lives matter too, okay? That's really what's being said. So let's not pass out about black lives matter, okay? Um, but, but understand the backdrop, okay? Um, there's a there's a professor, his name is Dr. Cornell West, and he wrote a book called Race Matters. In the book, he says that um, black people are the only people that were systematically taught to hate themselves. Well, let me explain. Um, if you go back to when black people came to America, you start off as a slave. You are property. You are, your name is changed. You are dehumanized, Okay. You move through this, and you've got, of course, civil, civil war, emancipation, emancipation proclamation. You've got reconstruction laws. Then you have Jim Crow, okay? We're separate but, not, separate but equal, but we know we're technically not equal, okay? Um, you start to go through history, and you see the absence of the black contribution in American history um, in your school books. Then you go, of course, into the civil rights movement. And what ends up taking place is that as you follow the history of African Americans, even if you say, well, maybe you weren't systematically taught to hate yourself, you have to at least say you were systematically taught to question your significance mm, mm, mm. as you go through history. So for me, I understand. Because when you look at it, at it from the backdrop of I was taught to question my, my significance. Of course, the statement then becomes black lives matter wow. because it's a statement to say, I've wondered if I've mattered. Wow. Now, that being said, I think another thing that we have to at least consider is why would a group of people have to say that? Why would that even need to be a statement? Um, I think that should concern us not solely as Americans, but as believers. And, and I want to say this, and we can talk about this further. Uh, we're talking about the issues, but I want you to understand that as I stand up here, I'm not first, and or as I sit up here, I'm about the same height when I stand, so I get confused. <laughs> um, but I want you to understand, I'm speaking to you not first as a black man, but as a believer. Okay? At the end of the day, there's one race a human race, we're all covered by the same blood, we all eat from the same bread, which is the bread of life, Jesus Christ, we're all part of the body of Christ, and so our response yeah. 
is that first and foremost as believers, okay? Um, So I want you to understand that. But as we navigate these issues, I think it's very important that we just understand the history, the backdrop, and why that statement has come forward. What do you think that people have a need to respond with another another hashtag like why, why do, wh- where does that response mm-hmm. do you believe that response comes from all lives matter uh, mm-hmm. you know? well it, I think I would say there's probably a couple reasons to that one again I think first and foremost it feels like an exclusive statement as opposed to inclusive so there is a statement there two I feel like let me just say it like this I guess I'll, I'll be really honest I think people are very bold on Facebook and Twitter and the, all of a sudden you've got a platform where you don't have to deal with anybody face to face so I can say anything um, and 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 actually I think it's a, a very uh, how do I say this are we are we like is this I've been saying it they've oh, been, been saying here. it okay. they came back okay. this week so they, they want to hear it okay so <laughs> I think when it comes to social media, it's a great place for cowards. And, and, and I mean that across the board. Uh, the reality is, is it's a lot easier for me to tweet something, to write something on Facebook, than to go sit down across from somebody and have coffee and let's have a conversation. I mean, literally, uh, this was two weeks ago, I sat across from a police officer and had a conversation. Because I want perspective. Yeah. I want per- so, I, so I asked this police officer, said, will you help me understand your perspective mm. on what's happening in our nation? Blew my mind. Mm. Mm. Blew my mind as he began to talk about, well, here's how I see the videos. Mm. Here's how I feel going in public now. Mm. I mean, I, I spoke to one police officer. He said, listen, um, I had just gotten to the place where I would actually wear my uniform and go out with my family. I had just gotten to that place. I will not do it anymore. I won't do it. Um, Like, I had never even thought about processing the situation like that. So I think social media is a great place for cowards to complain. And I think we as believers, I think it's very important that we actually stand up and say, I will sit down and have a conversation with you. I will sit down and talk to you. I will love you. I will care for you. I want to learn. Help me understand. And and I think, you know, talking about the cowards on, on the social media, I think that it's it's a great place for them to hijack something that's very genuine. Absolutely. A very genuine thing mm-hmm. to say, hey, Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. And then it gets hijacked and it becomes something that it was never actually intended when it first came out. Absolutely. It was just it was coming from the place that you were talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, and uh, but now it's it, it's hijacked and it's mm-hmm. taken by all these people and, and posted and so um, uh, tell me tell me about your personal experience um, uh, did you, did you have any experiences growing up here uh, dealing with uh, discrimination and and the difference maybe that that has made in your yep. life uh, well there's a quarterback his name was Philip Dees and uh, <laughs> you know I don't know if this is the proper place to to have this conversation but I'm glad you you brought it up. Um, <laughs> well, so let me say this. Um, my mother is back here. My mother's over here. This is Linda Lewis. Um, she is fantastic. Next to her, though, is my Aunt Jean and my Uncle Marcus. They are pastors in the Portland area down here. Um, so my, 
to give you a little background, my mother is from Portland, Oregon. She was one of the first African-Americans integrated into the all-white public school. My dad is from Plain Dealing, Louisiana, just down the street. <laughs> so, so I don't know. That was God. I don't know how that, that happened. But, but uh, So he's drinking out of different water fountains. Um, he's sitting in the back of movie theaters. He's riding in the back of the bus. And then they land in Treeport, Louisiana. So this is the home that I grew up in. My, my mother, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Mom, but um, I think my mother told me I didn't know I was black till I was like 11. Like, it's like I came home one day and was like, Mom, did you know? Uh, but, but I'll tell you, part, part of that growing up was this. When apparently the first sport I wanted to play when I came home was soccer. I don't know how. But I came home and told my dad I want to play soccer. I'm the only piece of chocolate running around on that field. Um, uh, but I didn't know. I, I just knew these were friends. We wanted to play soccer. Um, you know, and so I'm playing soccer. I play baseball. I play football. And I'm generally one of two or three African Americans on the team. I don't know. I'm just playing sports. Um, but I remember as I, I got into eighth grade, I was in a class and um, I was uh, the only African-American in the class. And I remember for some reason, I don't know if you guys remember that, that show Saved by the Bell back in the day. Um, so <laughs> we were talking about Saved by the Bell for some reason. It, it used to be popular back, I guess that's the early 90s. And I remember one of my classmates, he was a white gentleman, he said um, there was an episode where Zach, kissed and Zach was if you don't know Zach was the blonde haired guy I mean he was the star of the show but he kissed Lisa Turtle if y'all remember Lisa I had a crush on Lisa she was cute but she was the sister on the show but not as cute as your wife not as cute as my wife I love there. you uh -huh. I love yeah. you uh -huh. I got you uh -huh. I got you absolutely appreciate mm -hmm. you Phil uh -huh. appreciate you man disregard what I said at the beginning y'all he's loved me um so so we're talking about that, and he says, man, that, that episode where Zach kissed Lisa made me want to throw up. And he said, he said it, you know, it's like it made me want to throw up, and I stopped watching Saved by the Bell for a week. I remember that. Because there's this moment where you all of a sudden sit back and say, is there something wrong with me? I can remember in high school, um, going to a friend's house and not being let in their home because of the color of my skin. Uh, I remember in college being pulled over. Now, there were sometimes I was pulled over because I was speeding. I will say that right now. But I remember being pulled over before, and there was never an explanation as to why I was pulled over. And the only thing I could deduce from that was profiling. Um, I, I remember going to speak to uh, students in Arkansas, and I'm coming down the elevator with a gentleman and just before he walks out of the elevator, he says to me, Abraham Lincoln was a great president. He set those slaves free. And he just kept walking. I can remember um, when my wife and I decided to get married, there was a family member of hers that said, if you marry him, you are throwing your life away. And so you have these experiences and you can become jaded, jaded. You can become suspicious. Um, and it begins to shape, like what we talked about earlier, your outlook on life. 
I want to do this just for a moment, if it's okay. Um, I think I'll say this first, and then I'll do this. As I share this with you, I want you to understand something. Now, those things are very hurtful. On the other side of that, there's a white guy in my life that's like my grandfather. And he loves me like his grandson. And we go shopping together. And I help him pick out his clothes. Um, there have been mentors in my life that were white men, white women that have poured into my life. That have built me up and encouraged me. And God has used that to redeem some of those experiences. I also want to say this to you. As I share these things with you. I want you to understand I don't share as a victim. I think part of the tension is that it's easier to be a victim because then there's no ownership and no responsibility. The problem is, is that we just sang a song about being victorious. And so as believers, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We are already victorious. So I refuse to live my life as a victim when my God has already overcome and he's declared that I am more than a conqueror and I'm an overcomer by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony. So I don't say these stories as a victim. I say them as a victor. Now, that being said, when people share these stories, if you've had any experiences with racism, discrimination, prejudice because of class, color, age, any of those things, gender, there is something that happens inside of you. It reopens a wound. So I want to do something that I think is really important here. I don't want to embarrass you. This is, this is not my heart at all. In fact, what I want to do is I want to pray for you because I do believe that part of this conversation is supposed to bring healing. But I want to ask you today if you've experienced prejudice or discrimination because of color, because of class, if you've experienced it because of age or because of, of gender, I want to ask you to do something bold. I, I Really, my heart is not to embarrass you, but I do want to pray for you. So I'm going to ask you to do something really bold. If you've experienced that, and it's not just black, white, I'm talking gender, I'm talking whatever, culture, class, all those things. If you've experienced that in your life, would you stand up? That's almost half this room. That's almost half this room. The people that you're sitting right next to. Now here's what I want to do. I want us to pray. In fact, if you're if you're next to somebody that's standing up, would you just put your hand on their shoulder? Listen, our God is a healer. Yes, yes, yes. He heals the brokenhearted. He's close to the brokenhearted. And I believe he really wants to touch some people today. So I want us just to pray over the people that are standing right now. I'm going to start, but I want the church to be the church. So I want you to begin to speak life over them as well. 
And so, Father, we do right now. Come on, church, just begin to pray over them. Just begin to speak life over them. Father, we, we speak life over them right now. If there is a wound, if there is a, a hurt pocket, if there is a sense of brokenness, Father, we invite you right now. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and do only what you can do. A supernatural touch is what we need right now. Father, we thank you that you are the healer, that you sent your word and healed our diseases. And so, Lord, we speak your word over them right now. We speak wholeness, Father. We speak healing. We speak redemption right now. We speak freedom right now. Father, I pray right now that you would touch them in such a significant way that the lens that they've had before, the perspective that they had before would change instantly because of freedom, because of healing, Father, because of your anointing. And so we just speak over them right now, what they've experienced because of their gender, what they've experienced because of their nationality, what they've experienced because of their class, Father. Right now, we declare in Jesus' name, healing we declare it and we declare in this place today that we stand under the banner of Jesus Christ who is a risen savior who is king of kings and lord of lords and who is present so we thank you father for your healing touch right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we thank God right now? Amen. 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 Can I do one more? I'm going to do one more, okay? So, so this is probably um, less numerically, but I also think it's important. You know, one of the things that the... Uh, when I talked to a police officer, one of the things he said to me was um, he's got a friend that works in the school system as a police officer. And, of course, when everything went down with hands up, don't shoot, and, and then we found out, you know, what the story was behind that really. He said, I, I still had students that would come by my office, and they would put their hands up and say, hands up, don't shoot, to the police officer at the school. And... And what you find is that there are also some people that don't have prejudice, discrimination, or racism in their heart, but they're accused of it. And that's something we don't talk about, but it hurts because it's an indictment against your character. And you're saying, that's not me. That's not me. I didn't do that. That's not why I made that decision. And it hurts. And so even when something happens, you think, well, here we go again. Here we go again. But I think it's really important that we acknowledge that that peace is real as well and that we pray over those that have felt that before. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Again, not trying to embarrass you, but if you've ever felt falsely accused of prejudice, racism, or discrimination, I want you to stand. Church, if you're next to somebody that's standing, I want you to put your hands on their shoulders. I 
Actually, let me do this. While you have your hands on their shoulders, if, if you've been falsely accused before, I want you to look at me right now. And I want to say to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that indictment against your character. I'm sorry for the accusations. And I repent before you right now. And I ask you to forgive us. And so, Father, I pray right now for the people in this room that have been hurt by an accusation, by an indictment against their character. There are people in this room that have gotten a reputation, God, based on an incident that wasn't even true. And they've walked in that reputation. They've walked in that rumor mill. And it's not even true. And so, Father, right now, we just break the shame off of them. In Jesus' name, we tell shame to go. Father, and we speak healing over them right now. We speak truth over them. Father, any lies that they believed because of the enemy, because of this experience, Father, we just declare right now truth and healing and freedom and forgiveness in Jesus' name. Lord, we declare right now that the voice that we listen to will no longer be the voice of a stranger, will no longer be the voice of our peers, but it will be the voice of the living God. And so, Father, we invite you to speak right now, and you speak life, and you speak wholeness, and you speak strength right now, and you speak hope. Yes, yes. And we declare in this room today hope and healing in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Let's thank God one more time. So, so good. Um, I, I want to just jump right here to the, just, just the last couple questions um, uh, tonight. Um, uh, you've, you've already kind of mentioned uh, some of it, uh, but uh, as Christians, um, you know, we're called to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Um, we, are, uh, we, are, we are called to, to live uh, not by the standard of the world, but the standard of, of his kingdom. Um, and uh, what, what do you believe is the biblical way to respond, for us to respond to these issues? Well, I think there's a couple things to this. Um, one is kind of going back to what I said at the beginning. I think we need to have conversations like this. We need to create a safe place so that we can dialogue about these things. The second thing is um, I think that it's really important that we pause for a moment and invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. The psalmist says, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way within me. I think it's really important for us to pause for a moment and say, Holy Spirit, is, is, there, is there anything here? Yeah. And, and I'll be honest with you, even in this process for me, he's pointed out some things. Wow. Wow. He, he, he's pointed out some judgments in my own heart. Mm, mm, mm. And I think it's really important for us to invite the Holy Spirit to deal with our own hearts. And, and if there's something that he points out, just repent. There's also a part of this that when we invite the Holy Spirit to search us, 
he may touch on a place and say, you haven't forgiven yet. So for some of us, the searching is, okay, I need to repent. For some of us, the searching is, I need to forgive. That's one. The second thing is Jesus, before he washes the disciples' feet, he says something that is incredible to me. Uh, The scripture actually says that he showed them the extent of his love. In other words, he kept showing them how much he loved them, okay? And, And then the next thing that it says he did is he washed their feet. So his service to the disciples really was an expression of love, okay? Now, I'll talk about this love piece here in just a minute, but, but he served them, okay, as an expression of love. So obviously, we get, we understand that part of what our response is, is to love, but I think specifically, it looks like serving one another, okay? There is a statement when you see black people, white people, Hispanic people, Asian people, Indian people serving each other. In fact, I think this is the greatest opportunity for the church to stand up at this point. When you think about it, yeah, Philip, yeah. at 11 o'clock, we are the most segregated organization on, on Sundays. We're the most segregated yeah. organization in the world. Yeah. But we claim that we're one body. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, we have an opportunity while the enemy is trying to divide this nation because he understands the strength of unity. In fact, Psalm 133 says that God commands a blessing wow. Wow. over unity. So he knows what he's wow. doing. And wow. so part of that is for us to say, listen, we're going to express unity by serving each other. Here's the other part of that. I think there's a, a serving each other and I think there's a serving together. But the last part for me is if you think about in Galatians chapter 2, Peter left the house of the Gentiles because he felt like the Jews that were coming into Antioch, they were going to criticize him. So he left the house. He left the dinner table. He said, I can't eat with them. There is something that happens when we eat together. There is something that happens when we sit around the table together. Listen, I'll just tell you this. I think it's difficult possibly to come to church together. But you start going out to eat. You start inviting people into your home. Wait a minute. All of a sudden, it becomes a real issue. And here's the problem. We want to be comfortable, but we were never called to be comfortable as believers. That, that we were called to carry a cross. That, that's what he said. You signed up to carry a cross, so you're not supposed to be comfortable. So some of us need to get out of our comfort zones and invite people of different colors, different creeds, different nationalities into our home, to the dinner table, because that's Jesus. That's Jesus. If you think about it, in the book of Revelations, I believe it's chapter 5 and chapter 7, you see the picture of what the church is supposed to be like. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That is the eternal church. And then we say prayers like, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But let's go to a different church. Let's not associate with anybody else. And God's like, look, you want this to look like heaven, start with your home. Start with your home. So, So here's what I say to you. Search your own heart. Invite the Holy Spirit to do that. Decide, I'm going to serve together and serve one another. And then I'm going to invite people into my home. I'm going to invite people out to lunch. I'm going to, here's how I describe it. I think um, you've got, you've got uh, how would I say this? There's, there's shoulder to shoulder. Is that my man? Hey, Jaden. The little little boy in the back, that's my, he just grunts and stuff. So that's what's, he's just gangster. He's just gangster. Um, 
so, so you have um, shoulder-to-shoulder interaction, okay? Shoulder-to-shoulder would be, for me, it would be like serving together, okay? We're, we're focused on a goal. We're shoulder-to-shoulder, and we're going at this thing together. I think that's awesome. Praise the Lord. There's another dynamic to this, though, when you move from shoulder-to-shoulder to face-to-face. Face-to-face. Shoulder-to-shoulder means I see the goal. Face-to-face means I see the person. That's what happens when you sit around the table. That's what happens when you go out to dinner. All of a sudden, I see you. Search your heart. Serve with each other. Serve each other. Eat together. And here's the last thing I would say. I told you earlier about the family member that um, really said, you're throwing your life away to my wife. You're throwing your life away. So that was five years ago, and it was, it was overt. She didn't like me. I mean, it's one of those things like, you know, everybody gets Christmas presents, not me. Um, you know, and, and, and I mean, there would be times where, like, like you know, she'd, she'd give my wife a Christmas present, and then so I would go over to her and say, hey, thank you so much for that present. She would say, oh, that wasn't for you. That was for her. My bad. My bad. Um, I mean, that's literally how, how the relationship went. I mean, it was, it was a very, very difficult relationship. But here's what my wife and I decided. We decided, mm, we're going to love her. We're going to love her. Here, here's the thing, Philip. Genesis 1 and 2 says that we are all created in the image of God. We get it. So every person has value. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about that we are imitators of God. As dearly loved children, so live a life of love. So because I am born in the image of God, created in the image of God, and everybody else says, I understand everyone has value. Because I am a believer, I am called to live like Jesus, so I have to love people. Well, we decided we are just going to love this woman to life. So five years later, after refusing... To, to not love this woman and say, we're just going to love her, we're going to yeah. love her, we're going to love her. Yeah. She loves me back. Mm, 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 mm. She loves me back. Yeah. There is, I think it's First Corinthians 13, 8 says, love never fails. Mm, mm, mm. If we can get back to some of the simple things of the gospel, Loving God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and loving others as ourselves, we could solve these issues. We loved that woman until her only response to that was to say, i got to love you back. Mm -hmm. And we've watched the Lord transform Mm -hmm. that relationship. This is the last thing I'll say. I was told this by one of our pastors on staff, and it was actually for, um, for marriage. Um, but she said, look, she said, you, when you get married, you're handed two cards, okay? You're handed the love card and the change card. You get to choose which one you use on your spouse. You can use the love card or the change card. And here's how she said it to me. She said, so, so if you decide you want to use the change card, then God says, all right, I'll pick up the other card and just love them. But if you decide to use the love card, then God says, okay, 
I'll pick up the other card and I'll change them. In this situation, we have two cards in front of us. And we get to decide which one we pick up. We can decide the change one, and that's how we end up on social media saying crazy things that don't even make sense and aren't even biblical. Or we can say, I'm going to pick up the love card. And when I pick up the love card, I invite the Holy Spirit to transform and to change people's hearts. Man, that's so good. I I want to sneak this last question in here Um, uh, as we wrap this up. What is, what is one thing uh, that we can uh, that we can practically practically do to continue moving towards reconciliation as a, as a country, but even more importantly, as the body of Christ? Mm-hmm. What's what's just one thing? Uh, if I could say, besides the things that I just just said, if I could say one thing, here's what I would say: This is a spiritual battle. Okay. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. So what the enemy would love for us to do is to respond out of emotion. But how you enter into a spiritual battle is you go against it in the opposite spirit. So if the enemy wants to divide, our statement then is unity. If I could tell you one thing, and and this sounds simple, but it's true. Pray. And I think people that really pray, really touch the heart of God and really connect to the heart of God, what ends up happening is they become answers to their prayers. Um, remember, what Jesus, Jesus tells the disciples, listen, pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers to go in the harvest field. The next verse says, and he sent them out. <laughs> so here's my point. Yeah. Pray. Yeah. And be open for God to use you as an answer to your own prayer. So good, uh, and you know, and I think getting back to just what you were saying just a moment ago about about love, uh, that it, we're not we're not counting on uh, the government to fix our problem. We can't count on politicians to change our problems. Uh, policies and procedures is not going to change our problem. Uh, the change has got to come from our own hearts and uh, loving loving one another and, um, uh, and 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 serving and serving one another. And um, I know uh, tonight you that you wanted uh, uh, you wanted to close this service out with uh, communion, and so I'll I'll uh, just turn it over to you just to to do that. Yeah, I asked Pastor Philip if we could if we could finish with communion, and, and here's why: First Corinthians. Supposed to be a real holy moment. Can't even get my Bible right. Good, so we got some music so it sounds spiritual. <laughs> um, is this where I want to go with it? Is it First Corinthians 10? bigger of a Bible, it would, it would help. <laughs> First Corinthians uh, chapter 10, Paul is, of course, talking to the church at Corinth. And he's actually talking to them about uh, fleeing the worship of idols. 
But in this particular passage, he makes a statement about communion that I think is profound for what we're talking about today. And so I just want to read this passage for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Paul says, When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Let me say it again. And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Here's, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying when it comes to communion, we all drink from the same cup. So, of course, the, the cup is, is the blood of Jesus. So, so in essence, here's what, what Paul, is, Paul is saying. Listen, we're all covered by the same blood, the blood of Jesus. But then he says, we, we also, we eat from the same loaf. We eat from the same bread, the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. He says, so, so it's the same blood that covers us all, although we're many, and it's the same bread, the bread of life, that sustains us, uh, and, and that's, that's Jesus Christ. He says, so, so in a very real way, when you take communion, you are showing that you are one body. In other words, communion communicates connectivity. Communion is a statement of unity. Communion is a declaration of oneness. So today, as, as we take communion to wrap this time up, it is actually a statement to say that we are one body. So here's what I'd like for you to do. Thanks for listening today. We hope you were encouraged by the Word of God. If you'd like more information on North Point Community Church, you can find us online at www.northpoint.ccpeople.com.